Okay, so over the course of the retreat so far, I've mentioned quite a few times already that my, the mindfulness that we're cultivating here has a very specific purpose, and that's to develop insight, clear seeing, or transformative wisdom. And I mention this because in some other settings, mindfulness is used for a range of different purposes. So you may be familiar with mindfulness as a, a process for reducing stress or for managing anxiety. And sometimes it's uh, more and more these days promoted as a way to enhance every aspect of our lives. So just add mindfulness and your productivity at work will go through the roof. Your cooking will improve. Your stock market investing will bring you great rewards and your tango dancing will become incredible. And we can laugh, but I've actually seen mindfulness promoted in relation to all of those things. And that's not to deny that mindfulness may well improve those things. But in the Buddha's teachings, that kind of improvement is a byproduct of the practice. It's not the main goal. So I want to keep emphasizing that in this context, mindfulness is cultivated in the service of insight into seeing the truth of how things are, which is the Dharma. And last night I mentioned that the after the Buddha's awakening, the first person he encountered was really struck by a different quality in his being. And he asked the Buddha, who are you? And the Buddha said, I'm awake. He'd woken up from delusion, from ignorance, from not seeing clearly. And the next 45 years, all the Buddha's teachings that he gave from then on are really designed to help us see this truth. To see very clearly the truth that everything changes. That because everything changes, nothing can bring lasting satisfaction and that there is no fixed entity that I can permanently call me at the center of our being to whom all this experience is happening. So those of you who have some familiarity with the Buddha's teachings, you might recognize what I just said as uh, a way of describing what are known as the three universal characteristics of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, and of not-self. And these three are referred to as the three universal characteristics because they're true of every aspect of our experience. And yet most of the time, either we don't see them or we willfully ignore and deny them. And this is ignorance. And it's this ignorance that we're trying to wake up from when we develop mindfulness in the service of insight. So let's take a closer look at these three universal characteristics. The first one, impermanence, it might seem the most obvious of the three. We all know intellectually that everything changes and that this change happens on large and small scales. We can see it outside in the natural environment. A few days ago, it actually felt like summer. And now somehow it feels like we've gone back to winter. So here in the mountains, obviously the weather is constantly changing. 
we can see it inside in terms of our own bodies. None of us are teenagers anymore, although some of you are a little closer to those memories than others. But still, none of us are the children, the teenagers, the young people that we used to be. Our bodies are constantly changing. At times, they're getting sick. At times, they get injured. We're always aging. We're always getting closer to death. As Bhikkhu Analyo likes to say, each breath closer to death. So you might notice, what's the reaction when we take that in? We might want to laugh. It's because it's not the truth that we normally hear. It's not what society around us uh, likes to, to promote, quite the opposite. In mainstream society, we don't want to be reminded that our bodies are getting older, getting weaker, and that they will eventually die. Many people actually spend a fortune on various strategies for trying to stay as young-looking as possible for as long as possible. And yet, ultimately, our bodies are not in our control. We can't stop the aging process, and we can't stop ourselves from dying. But even though it might sound counterintuitive, turning to face this truth is ultimately what frees us. And just by way of reassurance, I want to emphasize again that this is a gradual training. And we can practice getting used to impermanence on different levels, starting with where it's most obvious and easy to see. And then slowly we begin to bring in those areas where the truth of impermanence is a little harder to accept. And gradually, as our wisdom develops and strengthens, we're able to open fully to the truth of change in every aspect of our lives. So to begin with, we might notice where the truth of impermanence is actually welcome. Perhaps when the bell rings at the end of a sitting, oh, thank goodness, thank goodness for the truth of impermanence. And on a retreat like this, we might start to actually appreciate the benefit that because everything changes, we don't need to get so caught up in struggling with our experience. If we're able to keep calmly knowing change, we see that we don't need to move the moment there's discomfort in the body. We don't have to have that second cup of tea in the morning in order to feel okay. Maybe we don't need to take that extra long nap after lunch either. If we stay patient, eventually the body and the heart and the mind naturally comes back to balance. In our ordinary life, though, we don't usually have the opportunity to see this because we're constantly, unconsciously reacting to every slight discomfort, trying to make what's unpleasant go away and trying to make what's pleasant stay. This is how impermanence and the second of these universal characteristics, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness work together. So dukkha is the truth that because everything is impermanent, it's just not able to offer lasting satisfaction. And traditionally, this word dukkha is translated as suffering. But in this context, that's not such a helpful translation. 
because we can hear the word suffering and think, well, you know, I have things that aren't so great, but I wouldn't say I'm actually suffering. But dukkha includes a much broader range of what we might think of than uh, the intensity of suffering. So I wonder right now in this moment, is anyone here in this room completely, utterly, 100% at ease? No? Yes? Nearly. Nearly is not good enough. It has to be 100%. Because often when we check, there's a slight sense of, well, if I wasn't so tired, well, then I'd be okay. Or if I could have just had a real cup of coffee in the morning, then I'd be okay. Or if I could just check in with my partner quickly, then I'd be okay. Or if only she'd stop talking and I could go to bed, then I'd be okay. So this sense of if only, this sense of lack, this is what, this is an aspect of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness. And the Buddha pointed out that even pleasant experiences have this dukkha characteristic because they don't last. They're not ultimately satisfying. Before long, they come to an end. And then we have to go chasing after the next hit of pleasant experience and then the next one and the next one and the next one and this is how the average person relates to the world constantly trying to change external conditions in order to make themselves happy but as i said on opening night what the buddha is inviting us to do is rather than keep changing our external circumstances He's inviting us to look at changing our internal relationship to them. And then it's possible that we can experience some degree of ease, even in the midst of difficult or challenging circumstances. And many of you have already experienced at least some sense of this on retreat, where we're developing this capacity to just be with our experience exactly as it is. And then surprisingly, when we can relate to it with kind curiosity, it's often much less of a problem than we might otherwise have expected. It's just backache or just a moment of boredom or just some heat in the body or just some sleepiness or just relationship fantasies or might even just be calm or concentration or ease. So what we can discover in all of this being with experience exactly as it is, is that it's constantly changing, it's unsatisfactory, and it's not our fault. Because if we look carefully, we can see that we're not actually in control of very much at all. And this is an aspect of the third universal characteristic, which is translated as not-self. And unlike the first two, this one is a little harder to understand and appreciate, partly because of confusion about the word self, what this is pointing to. So we can hear this teaching on not-self and think that, well, I'm supposed to become a non-entity or to annihilate my ego or somehow make myself into a completely colorless, bland personality. But that's not at all what this has meant what the Buddha's pointing to here. Instead, he's asking us to look at the ways that we try to create a fixed, 
permanent sense of someone, of me, usually at the center of a universe that we ourselves have created. So you may even see it on retreat sometimes that it's like, it's almost as if we've uh, written ourselves a movie that we're starring in, we're producing in, we're directing, we're publicizing, that we're fully inhabiting as if it was real. So we wake up and here's me, a meditator on retreat, and now I'm going to the hall and I'm doing my meditation and now I'm doing my mindfulness job and, and so on. We're constantly narrating this story with ourself as the central character. And the problem with that constant habitual self-referencing is that it narrows our world. It narrows our possibilities. It just keeps us referring back to me, what I want, who I am, and all that habitual reactivity. On the other hand, the more we can really see through this constant illusion of I and me and my and mine, as we were doing in the dyad practice this afternoon, we start to experience more ease, more happiness, more choice, more freedom. We don't take everything so personally anymore, and we learn to let go of trying to micromanage every aspect of our experience, including even our meditation practice because we see that we're not really in control of very much at all. But I'm not asking you to take the Buddha's word for it, or even to take my word for it, but to really test this out in your own experience, to investigate and see, is this true for you? Through strengthening the continuity of mindfulness, we naturally develop more clarity, and we might start to see impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and not-self operating on deeper and deeper levels. And this is the progress of insight. And again, I want to highlight that this progress develops gradually. So if for some of you what I'm talking about now seems a little bit remote or abstract, that's okay. If you just keep showing up for your experience as you have been, just keep calmly knowing change, eventually these concepts will start to become more real and more true in your own experience. And particularly if you're new to meditation practice, in order to develop this kind of clear seeing that leads to insight, we usually need to put quite a bit of time and effort into overcoming the obstacles to clear seeing. So the Buddha was a very skilled teacher and he recognized that there are certain qualities of mind that really get in the way of our capacity to see clearly. So he instructed us to be on the lookout in particular for five very unhelpful qualities of mind which are traditionally known as the five hindrances. And these five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. And they're called hindrances because they hinder or obscure insight. They obscure our capacity to see clearly. Not only that, but they can lead to harm to ourselves and harm for others too. 
So according to the suttas, the Buddha is reported to have said that these five hindrances, quote, overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. And he goes on to say that when a practitioner is without strength and is weak in discernment, it's impossible to understand what is for one's own benefit, to understand what is for the benefit of others, and to understand what is for the benefit of both. So he's really suggesting that letting go of these hindrances will help us bring more benefit to ourselves and to others. So it's important to learn to how to recognize these five hindrances because unless we're fully awakened, they are definitely going to be part of our practice. They're definitely going to show up in our meditation and in our lives. So I'd like to go through them now in just a little bit more detail. The first one, again, the hindrance of sensual desire, refers to any form of greed, that sort of compulsive wanting energy in the mind. And when we're in the grip of sense desire, our seeing is completely colored by that desire. We talk about seeing the world through rose-tinted spectacles, We only see what we want to see, what we like, and what we think is going to bring us lasting happiness. I think I will share it with you a slightly embarrassing example of this from my own life. When I was on staff at IMS, we had a fridge in the staff dining room, and one shelf in that fridge was um, for people to offer dana, so if there was food that they uh, were fine for anyone on staff to help themselves to, they would write dana on that food and leave it in the fridge. And one day I came in and there was this bottle of um, black cherry, <coughs> excuse me, black cherry juice, and it had dana written on the top of it. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. So I tried some and it was absolutely delicious. So I had a little bit more and I had a little bit more. And in fact, I ended up drinking the whole bottle. It was really good. And I came in the next day, and wow, there was another bottle, and it said Dana. And I thought, this is amazing. What a great place to work where you just get this free supply of black cherry juice. Excuse me. I could use some right now. And then on about the third day, I came in, and there was another bottle of black cherry juice. But this time it said, please do not drink my juice, Laura. And the word, the way Laura had written her name with my rose-tinted spectacles, I saw Dana, because <laughs> that was what I wanted to see. And so I had to very embarrassedly uh, try to replace her stock of black cherry juice, which actually was really expensive. So that's just a simple example of how when we're caught in sense desire, we can tend to see what we want to see and to disregard other people's needs. So again, uh, we see what we want to see, but because of this uh, truth of the truth of impermanence, we're not going to get lasting satisfaction from what we think is going to give us happiness. And just to say that we can hear sense desire, we can hear talk about greed and think, well, I'm not really a greedy person. But the sense desire covers a whole range of wanting from the most addictive, compulsive, intense craving right through to just the slightest trace of wanting. 
And on retreat, this uh, hindrance can sometimes come up quite strongly as a reaction to the simplicity or the renunciation that we're invited into. So we come on retreat and we're invited to accept the conditions as we find them in the spirit of generosity that they're offered with. And sometimes this letting go can really stir up the opposite, the hindrance of sense desire. And perhaps some of you have noticed, I have myself on times at retreat, fixating on little pleasantnesses that in our ordinary lives we might not even pay that much attention to. So perhaps as a delicious dessert and we find ourselves wondering if we could take a second or a third piece and store it somewhere for our afternoon tea. And we can get confused about what we want, confusing it with what we need. And on retreat, all of our basic needs are met or even surpassed. I'm thinking of the food here. But somehow our energy still gets fixated on trying to make the environment even better for ourselves. I know this very well from my own experience as a meditator, but also from managing retreats here at BMIMC and IMS in the U.S., we can hear that inner voice that says, if only my room was a little bit warmer, then everything would be okay. If only I didn't have to wait so long for a shower, everything would be okay. If only they serve ice cream with the desserts, then everything would be okay. And it's just on and on and on, getting lost in all the ways that things will be better if we just had a little bit more X or Y or Z. But if we can notice that and just even name to ourselves, oh, this is sense desire. Just naming the hindrance like that can help it to release. And right there in that moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. And I just want to mention uh, when we talk about sense desire, it's not that the Buddha was saying we should never enjoy anything or that we should try to avoid any kind of pleasant experiences. It's not that what he's pointing to is to notice our relationship to pleasant experiences, to notice if we're getting attached, fixated or caught in them in some way. So coming back to the bowl of ice cream example again, if we, um, if ice cream did happen to be served, there's no guarantees, but if it did and we were able to have a bowl of ice cream and just notice this is pleasant, yep, enjoyment, Fine, no problem. On the other hand, if we come into the dining room and we see there's ice cream at the end of the table and we start counting how many people are in line ahead of us and wondering whether it's going to be our favorite flavor and what brand it is and how much we can fit in a bowl without looking too greedy and if we notice all of that agitation in the mind, that's probably a sign that there's some form of sense desire has crept in. So this is the first hindrance, that uh, unconscious or habitual moving towards something that we want. The second hindrance is actually the opposite move. The hindrance of ill will or aversion is that moving away from what we don't like. It's any form of not wanting, of hatred, of aversion, and particularly of anger. Because when the mind is agitated by anger, again, we can't see clearly. So in English, we have the saying, to be blind with rage. And perhaps uh, 
We've had the experience for ourselves of just being so overtaken with anger that we can't think straight. So we talk also about seeing red. Seeing red, again, we're not seeing clearly. And when we're caught in that, we do and say things that are definitely not for our own welfare or the welfare of others. And again, this uh, hindrance covers a whole range from the most extreme murderous rage right through to the most subtle trace of aversion, any form of resistance or not wanting. So on retreat, this hindrance can often show up as a particular form of the judging mind. And I know some of you have mentioned this already today, that you've seen this for yourselves, that how we can judge ourselves, that we judge our practice, we judge each other, we judge the teachers, we judge anything that moves sometimes. And it can be quite shocking to see just how much mental energy gets taken up by this judging mind. So the trick here is not to take it personally, and if possible, to bring a sense of humor to this uh, tendency because it is so universal. I think, perhaps I should check, has anybody here not experienced any judging today? Okay, so at least here in this room, we're in good company or bad company. Not sure that's the right metaphor, but just to point to the fact that it's universal, that it's very common. So one uh, strategy that one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, uses when he he was um, getting caught in this a lot was to actually count the judging thoughts. So we can try this for ourselves when you wake up and you notice that first judging thought. Oh, judgment number one. When we get out of bed and go to the bathroom and something comes up, judgment number two, number three, number four, number five, number 50, number 100. So at some point when we see just how often they're coming, we can't take them seriously anymore. And we just have to laugh. So we might need to use these different strategies of knowing what's happening, naming it, and if possible, bringing a sense of humor, recognizing this is not our personal shortcomings. So the next three hindrances of sloth and torpor, of restlessness and remorse and doubt, these are all different flavors of ignorance or of delusion, different flavors of disconnection and distraction. And the first of those pairs, the hindrance of sloth and torpor, these are old-fashioned English words that basically refer to different types of dullness, dullness of the body and dullness of the mind. So if you know the animal, the sloth, the sloth is one of those creatures that the, I understand from a friend who's seen them in the wild that they live up trees and they just stay there. And every now and then they move really slowly down to the ground, apparently just to defecate, and then they move very slowly back up. So there's not a lot going on for your average sloth. And I've heard, he, my friend reported that their their fur is actually green with algae because they move so slowly and they're so damp for so long that they actually get algae growing in their fur. So that's a pretty powerful image of sloth and torpor, the results of it. 
closer to home, I think actually of the koala as being a little bit similar. I know at times on retreat, one of the dangers of this hindrance, unlike the others, is it can actually be experienced as somewhat pleasant. So when we're just really settled back, and we're like that koala, just kind of hanging in a tree with just enough energy to not fall off our cushion, but not a lot else going on. That's another personification of sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor sometimes actually is uh, can come up a little more deliberately as that sense of just pulling back or withdrawing, disconnecting when things get challenging. So sometimes it manifests as that, as that desire just to go back to bed and pull the covers up when things get difficult. And sometimes it masquerades as self-compassion. So it can be that voice that says, well, you know, you've had a hard day today. You've worked pretty hard. It wouldn't hurt to take a little nap. And check it out. That might be true. There are times when the best thing we can do for our practice is to rest. But if we find ourselves doing that often and for long periods of time, might be a time to stop and check. What effect is this having on my meditation? Is it leading in the direction of clear seeing? Or is it just a habitual zoning out and checking out? So you can notice, is this really for my own welfare? And is it for the welfare of others? So again, because we're in this together, you might like to imagine if every one of us decided to have an extended nap after lunch and just skip the two o'clock sitting, and you were the one person who did show up, probably wouldn't be so good for your motivation. So having this willingness to work through sloth and torpor really is of benefit not only to we ourselves, but to all of us here today. So having an imbalance of energy in the direction of not enough energy is this hindrance of sloth and torpor. And then we can go to the other side of the scale and have an imbalance of too much energy. And this is the hindrance of restlessness and remorse. And this is when the body is very agitated and jumpy and the mind just won't settle and it gets caught in endless loops of agitation, anxiety, and so on. And again, this covers the whole spectrum of intensity through, from the most intense agitation through to just little flickerings of anxiety or regret. We can notice it as a form of obsessive going over the same um, thought patterns over and over and over again. This also is a form of restlessness. So again, just being able to name, oh, this is restlessness. Or this is regret, remorse. Just naming it can be very helpful. And sometimes these forms of agitation can shade over into the final hindrance, which is the hindrance known as skeptical doubt. So can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, what's, I, I don't use the word remorse much. Could you kind of contextualize that? It's, um, it, it's a particular energy that... Um, agitates the mind because of unskillful behavior in the past. 
So it's when we get caught in, oh, why did I do that? I was such an idiot. Why did I say that? If only I hadn't, you know, it's that sort of rumination is another, it's a flavor of rumination, but usually triggered by something unskillful and in the past. So it's, again, it's another way that we come out of the present moment and get caught in proliferation of thinking. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So the last one, the skeptical doubt, is that hindrance where we just we can't decide. We get caught in paralysis by analysis. We just don't know what to do. We undermine, we second guess. The mind goes into overdrive trying to work out. Sometimes we see it um, in relation to the different meditation practices. Oh, should I be doing mindfulness of breathing? Should I concentrate on physical sensation? Should I be walking? Should I do metta? What should I do? Oh, if you find yourself caught in that, no doubt. And you can always come back to just knowing that you're breathing in, knowing that you're breathing out. That's always time well spent. So doubt uh, is qualified as skeptical doubt so that we don't confuse it with genuine inquiry. So genuinely investigating and asking questions is not doubt because it's actually what we refer to as onward leading. It's helping us to get more clarity, whereas skeptical doubt is just kind of the mind spinning around in circles, not able to decide anything for itself. So it can show up sometimes as doubt in our own capacity to do the practice. And we hear ourselves saying, well, maybe it works for everyone else here. Maybe it's worked for millions of people over thousands of years, but I'm uniquely defective and I I don't think it's going to work for me. We might start to doubt the teachers. This was true for me in one of my early retreats, the first Western teachers that I worked with and I paid a lot of attention to how they walked and how they talked and I noticed that they did everything pretty mindfully and but at the time that wasn't enough for me I was looking for some kind of charismatic glow or something a little bit more exciting than being able to eat their lunch mindfully so I spent a lot of time just doubting the teachers until finally I um, understood more clearly just what it was that they were offering we can doubt the teachings themselves. You know, we hear all these numbered lists, the five hindrances and the three characteristics and the four noble truths and on and on and on, the four foundations of mindfulness. We can think, well, these teachings are so old. They're from a different culture and they really need a bit of a PR makeover and a more exciting way of presentation than numbered lists. But as I think most of you know, it's because these teachings were transmitted orally through memorizing and numbered lists are a a helpful device to help things stay in the mind. So being on the lookout for doubt is sometimes the most challenging of all of them because it can be quite seductive. That slightly cynical voice asks, well, what do you think you're doing here anyway? Really, what's the point of all this? What good is it doing you? Wouldn't it be better to have a real holiday? What's the point in putting yourself through all of this? And these doubts can come externally too in the voice of mainstream society that doesn't always value what we're doing here. So sometimes we need to be on the lookout for doubt and to see it how it is, see it as it is. 
And that's partly why we really need the support of other people on retreat. Because as it says in the teachings, in some ways this practice really is swimming upstream. It's going in the opposite direction of a lot of mainstream values. So it's really helpful to keep checking in with other people who share similar values. So that's a a fairly brief overview of the five hindrances. And it's one reason why I offer you, you earlier those three questions to notice what's happening in my body, what's happening in my mind, and how am I relating to this experience? Because the third question, how am I relating to this experience, can help sometimes to reveal the presence of the hindrances. So if we notice some kind of clinging or resisting or struggle with our experience. In fact, whenever there's struggle in your experience right there, see if you can notice, okay, one of the hindrances or more than one of the hindrances is present. Otherwise, there would not be struggle. So it can be helpful when you recognize some sense of struggle just to run through the list. What is this? Is it sense desire? Is it ill will? Is it sloth and torpor? Is it restlessness and remorse? Is it skeptical doubt? Or is it more than one of them? Because unfortunately, these um, these hindrances tend not to come very nicely in sequential order, one at a time. They seem to hunt in packs. And if one gets a hold, it brings in the other four along with it. So I thought maybe to just uh, give us some practice in learning to recognize these hindrances, I'd like to tell you a mostly hypothetical story, a, a work of fiction about a hypothetical meditator on retreat and a series of experiences that she had when her mindfulness was not particularly strong. So I'll use the I pronoun, but again, this is only partly biographical. Imagine that I'm early, not long after breakfast, I decide to go and walk on my favorite walking track and it happens to take me past the kitchen and somebody on staff is making themselves a pot of freshly brewed coffee. So as I walk past the kitchen, I get this waft of fresh coffee. My mindfulness isn't very strong and immediately, mmm, That will be really good about now. And my mind goes to my favorite cafe and those amazing little raspberry tarts that they serve in summer. And I look at my watch and it's still one more walking, one more sitting, one more walking, one more sitting, and then lunch. And I start to wonder, how am I going to get through the morning with nothing to eat? My stomach begins to grumble really loudly. And I think, you know, this is really pretty crazy. Why do they never serve morning tea on these retreats? There's probably people here who have hypoglycemia. You know, it might actually be kind for them to talk to the manager about just seeing if they could put out a little bit of banana cake or something. In fact, I'm feeling quite lightheaded right now. You know, I wonder if you can develop hypoglycemia on retreat. My legs are really feeling quite wobbly and, you know, maybe I just need to rest a little bit. I think, yeah, I'm just going to go and take a little bit of a nap and see if this lightheadedness passes. Oh, it's so good to lie down. 
And then suddenly a bell rings and I'm completely disoriented. I have no idea what time it is and I realize it's halfway through the afternoon instructions. I can't believe it. And I think, should I go back into the hall? People will wonder where I've been. They'll know that I've been napping for like three hours. Really, I can't believe I've been sleeping all that long. You know, my friends were right. They told me I wouldn't make it. This is just so embarrassing. I think, you know, wasn't there a sign on the way up here for a backpackers that was advertising free beach accommodation if you stay for, you know, that's a great idea. I am so out of here. So in this hypothetical story, I wonder what you noticed. Which of the hindrances were coming up at any one time? You might notice how when one gets a hold, it tends to bring the others along with it. And before we know it, we're really in the grip of a multiple hindrance attack. And we can laugh, but it is possible to go from the smell of coffee to checking out of the retreat. And I'm really appreciating that none of you have done that because I know for myself the strength of these hindrances when they really get a grip. So I offer that also as an example of practicing what I sometimes refer to as post-mortem mindfulness. So normally mindfulness is about being in the present moment. But sometimes when we realize that we've been caught in something and we realize that after the fact, it can actually be really helpful to go back, to trace back and see if we can find what was the trigger for that whole sequence. And when we recognize it, we can really firm up the intention to not go there again. So, for example, in that, if I was able to trace back that um, story I just told you, I might have recognized that smell of fresh coffee in the morning. And I could make a choice then. Either I don't walk near the kitchen right after breakfast, or I notice the smell of coffee and I just notice, oh, pleasant smell, sense desire, Letting it go, continue with my walking. So we're on the lookout for that tendency to get pulled into something. So the first step in working with any of these hindrances is to recognize them, to identify them and just to know when they're present. And to relate to them with this experience of bare awareness just in the same way we were doing with the physical sensations earlier today, to just know, oh, this is sense desire. Oh, this is sloth and torpor. And to not take it personally. And this is a huge challenge with this hindrances because the tendency is to think that they're a reflection of my practice, that because they've come up, I'm a bad meditator, or I'm by extension, I'm a bad human being. But as I said earlier, unless we're fully realized, fully awakened, these hindrances are naturally going to be part of our experience. So rather than judging ourselves for them, I appreciate the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea, who reframes them as manifestations of our humanity. So you might notice a shift in relationship when you hear manifestations of our humanity rather than the five hindrances. And so sometimes people come into meetings with me and say, I've been manifesting so much humanity today. <laughs> and it's helpful to be able to laugh at them, to not take them personally. 
So again, just that encouragement to see if you can relate to the hindrances with this attitude of kind curiosity, to see them as just impersonal phenomena. They arise due to conditions, and eventually, because of impermanence, they will pass too. They're not I, they're not me, and they're not mine. So one last point in relation to them, I'd like to share with you the actual instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta, which are the same for each of the five hindrances, but I'll read you just the one for the first one in relation to sensual desire. It says, Here, meditators, while sense desire is present in one, a meditator knows there is sense desire present in me, Or, while sense-desire is not present in one, one knows there is no sense-desire present in me. One also knows how the sense-desire which has not yet arisen comes to arise. One knows how the sense-desire that has arisen comes to be discarded. And one knows how the discarded sense-desire will not arise again in the future. So in this passage, it's clear that it's not enough to simply be mindful of the hindrances. We need to know what causes them to arise. When they do arise, how to let them go and how to prevent them from coming up again in the future. And there's a lot in that, so I'll be talking about that more later in the retreat. But for now, I just want to highlight the statement that we need to know when they're present and when they're absent when we're free of the hindrances, because that's an aspect of the practice that we often overlook. You know, many of us are so conditioned to see what's wrong, where we're not measuring up, where we're, um, where things aren't going well, and to fixate on them and not to even notice those times when the hindrances are not present. So just an invitation over the rest of the retreat to see if you can begin to tune in and know when the hindrances are absent. Those moments, and they may just be small moments, but those moments of ease and acceptance and letting go and balance of heart and mind, those are all times when the hindrances are absent. So as the hindrances become less, as they become weaker, The good news is that there's more room in the heart and the mind for the awakening factors to arise. And that's yet another numbered list that I won't go into tonight, but I just want to name that there is a relationship between these two, that the more we let go of the hindrances, the more the conditions that are supportive of freedom start to come into play. And over time, the mind naturally spends more and more time in these qualities of mindfulness and investigation and energy and joy and tranquility and concentration and equanimity. So I'd just like to finish with a quote from the Thai master Ajahn Chah who talks about how mindfulness can really bring the absence of the hindrances and the peace that comes as a result. He says, try to be mindful 
and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become come still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So may we all recognize the hindrances, learn how to free ourselves from them, and experience the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for your attention.